This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, your source for all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about research into the causes and treatments of mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, striving to decrease the stigma associated with psychiatric illness and requiring treatment, and to better educate the public. Welcome back, folks. This is the January 15th, 2014 of Psychiatry Today. Hope that you've been feeling well mentally and emotionally. And if you're not, would love to be able to help. So be sure to send me all of your mental health-related questions, especially if you yourself are having a problem or maybe even someone close to you is. You can also send me your comments about tonight's show or a previous show that you've listened to, either from the podcast on iTunes. And shout out goes to all of you who download it. Thanks very much. Cannot tell you how much your support means to me. Or those of you who are listening to the show right on the site, americaswebradio.com, where, by the way, I encourage you to check out the other programming. And uh, send me your questions, your comments, your feedback about the show to the following email address. It's Dr. Scott, and that's spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. You have my word. All information will be kept confidential and private. Carefully scrub whatever I read on the air so as not to give out any personal information inappropriately. And generally speaking, with few exceptions, my feedback from, for your question would air on the following week's show. Keep in mind the show is pre-recorded. And as for what some of the top mental health-related stories have been, since we last got together, <clears throat> I decided to start with this item about preventing gun violence. Uh, unfortunately, there have been no shortage of mass murders, shootings, committed by mentally ill people that I've had to talk to you about on the show. Certainly an extremely and severely unpleasant thing to talk about but certainly something I can't ignore as someone who has a weekly show about mental health-related issues and current events. And <clears throat> the uh, article talks about what certain experts think works and what doesn't work in terms of preventing gun violence. Now, even since uh, the anniversary of the tragic shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, has passed, gun violence remains a very pressing issue. A new report 
from the American Psychological Association. Uh, this is not the American Psychiatric Association, of which I'm a member. This is a group of psychologists, uh, highly trained mental health professionals in their own right, but PhDs, not MDs, in other words, not physicians. <clears throat> this report summarizes recent research that has helped underpin evidence-based programs to prevent gun violence. Though there is no single personality profile that police can use to predict who will commit violent acts, the report be brings to light ways to prevent a similar incident. The report is titled Gun Violence, Prediction, Prevention, and Policy. It argues that this type of prediction is not necessary to prevent shootings. Primary prevention programs can lower risk factors, while secondary prevention programs can reach out to people facing emotional difficulties or interpersonal conflicts. One approach the report says shows promise is a behavioral threat assessment whereby at-risk individuals are identified and intervention occurs before there can be any violence. There is only a moderate ability to identify individuals most likely to commit serious acts of violence. And the report goes on to say that access to mental health care can lower the risk of gun violence, but the availability of such programs is, of course, as we all know, woefully insufficient. When I first read this article, I thought to myself, well, a behavioral threat assessment sounds like a great tool, and you look at at-risk individuals and intervene before anything happens. But the problem is, how do you identify these at-risk individuals? In the case of Sandy Hook, it was obvious that Adam Lanza had problems for one reason or another. Her, uh, sorry, his family could not or did not choose to address them. And, uh, you know, this is not by way of placing blame, simply stating the facts. Uh, the reasons are complex, not the least of which is uh, Adam himself, who was of adult age, was not of a mind to cooperate with treatment. Now let's take a look at the violence prevention strategies that are among the key findings of this American Psychological Association report. Behavioral threat assessment teams made up of trained experts are the most effective tool to prevent mass shootings. Again, uh, I don't think anyone could argue that. The question is, how do you identify the people who should be evaluated by this team? Next point is keeping firearms away from high-risk individuals has been shown to lower the risk of violence. License purchases, background checks, and requiring close oversight of gun stores can reduce the diversion of guns to criminals. Certainly sounds like an idea that would work, but it raises several questions, including, again, how do you fix, at best, a patchwork system of 
checks and balances in terms of known mentally ill persons' ability to procure firearms? And how do you account for the reality that there are going to be some people who procure firearms illegally or outside the system, even if they have been flagged as individuals who should not be able to obtain them? And furthermore, again, uh, how do you account for people who have yet to be known to the mental health system in one way or another and therefore would not be flagged by even very strict laws regarding access of guns and the mentally ill? It also touches on freedoms that uh, gun rights advocates hold dear uh, in terms of ready access to them and uh, without excessive onerous background checks. Next point, because a tendency for violence can begin early in life, families and community environments must promote healthy development and care for troubled children. Again, I don't think anyone would argue against that point. Uh, the questions it raises is, all right, well, whose responsibility is it to promote healthy development and care for troubled children and dealing with uh, stressed community environments and therefore family environments? Um, the obvious answer is that they're looking at government agencies to address this and you know how are these resources going to be paid for is the next question this begs next point of the report early intervention with at-risk families can improve parenting skills and disrupt the pathway from early onset aggression to violence this is well documented in research and again a point that few could argue with However, again, it begs the question, uh, how are you going to single out these families for intervention? Who is going to ensure that these families receive the counseling and education that they need? And again, how is all that going to be paid for? And what do you do when even if you are successful in identifying an at-risk family, uh, the family does not think there is a problem or otherwise is reluctant to cooperate with intervention. Next point, access to mental health care can help people at risk of committing acts of violence, although it must be pointed out most people with mental health issues are not violent. Well, uh, again, uh, I hate to sound like a broken record, but like most of the other points, no one would argue that better access to mental health care would help. Uh, however, we all know that access to mental health care is often blocked by lack of health insurance coverage, lack of available providers, and <clears throat> also lack of family or community support in guiding someone toward seeking and obtaining mental health care. And finally, police Educators and mental health providers must team up to offer community-based solutions for gun violence prevention. I think it's a fantastic idea. It takes effort and time 
and motivation for representatives of those three groups, police, educators, mental health providers, to come together and to forge these connections, come up with mechanisms for collaboration, and no doubt if that took place, it certainly, uh, I think, would result in opportunities to prevent gun violence. Now, the report's authors say that research-based prevention efforts to keep guns out of family and community conflicts, as well as policies that identify and provide adequate treatment for the mentally ill, are effective where they are in place. They also say more funding for research and better access to gun data can help prevent violent incidents. Again, uh, something that would be very helpful if it were readily available. As yet, it most often is not. All right, we'll continue this discussion and have other mental health-related news when we come back after this commercial break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Certification. Do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Hi, this is Dave Smith. Listen every Monday to America's Web Radio, The American Dream. My past background with healthcare, being president of uh, insurance companies, will keep you informed on healthcare and other topics that's going on in Washington and around this great country. American Dream, 10 a.m., America's Web Radio. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, bringing you all the latest mental health related news. We've just uh, observed some very sad anniversaries that of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Connecticut, and uh, also another anniversary of the Tucson shooting, and another look at the remarkable recovery and rehabilitation of one of the victims of that shooting who survived, former Representative Gabrielle Giffords. And we continue to be on the lookout for other school-related violence. A report from the American Psychological Association has several recommendations for preventing gun violence that we discussed before the commercial break, and uh, it is felt that it's very important to distinguish between risk assessments and behavioral threat assessments. 
Risk assessments are performed for individuals who have been referred to a psychiatrist, for example, by a court or an employer. Behavioral threat assessments are used to respond to a threat and gather information about the individual to determine how imminent the threat might be. And it's important, again, to keep in mind that there have been situations many times where the shooter in these situations has come to the attention of either law enforcement or mental health providers or both. But there are also times when uh, the individual has not come to the attention of either of these two groups. At times, after a dangerous situation has been diffused, a person who has undergone a behavioral threat assessment will be referred for a broader scope risk assessment. This can help them create a long-term risk management plan. A report released recently in which the Federal Bureau of Investigation said it has interrupted almost 150 shootings or other violent attacks this year, largely by referring high-risk individuals to psychiatrists. Such news is certainly very heartening, and such work is obviously extremely laudable. Uh, would that this type of work could be expanded exponentially beyond federal law enforcement and uh, into state and local law enforcement. One way of thinking about it is that a behavioral threat assessment disrupted potential attacks, but those referred for mental health assessment and care would receive the follow-up of a more comprehensive risk assessment and management procedure. Both types of these assessments are effective as long as the individual is willing to share information about their intentions and motivations, which obviously you cannot always count on. Again, I think we have to count on other people's good judgment and prudence and willingness to report aberrant behavior and statements when observed. In the meantime, sadly, I think until much better behavioral threat assessment and mental health services are in place, what can be done about school violence? Well, obviously a lot of talk has uh, been made about resource officers in the schools, armed guards, uh, in some cases even strong consideration has been given to arming school administrators, if not teachers. But if there's any lessons to be learned from some recent school shootings, uh, another one that tragically ended with a loss of life in Colorado, and one not too long ago here in Georgia, unfortunately no one was hurt, Make sure your school, your child's school, does not have any doors propped open. This is how two recent school shooters entered the school building. Uh, in fact, you might even want to think about having a very blunt discussion with your school administrators to ask them about security where your 
child is going to school. Are all the doors secure? Are there any doors that are routinely kept propped open? Are there people who, after entering a locked door, make sure it closes behind them, even if it means being rude to someone tr behind them trying to get in the door to whom they are, are not sure legitimately have the right to enter. All right, let's move on to other mental health-related subjects. Now, another fairly big news item lately is the legalization of recreational use of marijuana in Colorado uh, with Washington State soon to follow. This is, uh, by any measure, an exceedingly bad idea. Um, you know, I make no bones about being very much against this. Marijuana is toxic to the brain. It is a hallucinogen that induces a psychotic state. And the evidence of brain damage, damage to cognitive functions such as attention and memory, is so long and well established, um, and yet apparently uh, this is what the public wants, at least in those two states, and there may be more on the way. Uh, furthermore, it's quite transparent that in places where there are medical marijuana clinics, um, the situation is widely abused and misused in terms of people getting access to these clinics and getting prescriptions for marijuana without a legitimate medical need. I do not think I'm exaggerating or talking out of turn. Just ask anyone who lives or works near one of these clinics in California. So with that being said, I came across this article, uh, Research into the Effects of Marijuana Use, and the conclusion is that daily use of marijuana is tied to the age of first psychotic episode. In a study of adults who experienced psychosis for the first time, having smoked marijuana daily was linked to having an earlier age of onset of the psychotic disorder. They looked at 400 people who were admitted to hospitals in South London in the UK who were diagnosed with a psychotic episode and they found that the heaviest smokers of high potency cannabis averaged about six years younger of this first psychotic episode than those who had not been smoking pot. In other words, in those who were vulnerable to developing psychosis anyway, smoking pot, especially high, high potency Marijuana will hasten the onset of psychosis, which is a general term for loss of reality. It's actually associated with several different psychiatric diseases, including schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but there's also sometimes episodes of depression that manifest with psychosis. <clears throat> uh, those who are vulnerable to developing these diseases typically have a family history of related mental illness. Specific gene mutations are no, about, no doubt a contributing factor. 
Now, the evidence has been conflicting up until now. So in this new study, which, by the way, was published in the journal called Schizophrenia Bulletin, the research uh, researchers focused on patterns of cannabis use, gender, and the relationship of those factors to the timing of a first psychotic episode. Age is significant. The teenage years and early 20s are a critical time for professional and educational development, so experiencing an acute psychotic episode for the first time early on may negatively affect the likelihood of achieving optimum level of function. With this in mind, the, the researchers surveyed 410 patients between the ages of 1865, two-thirds of them male, all of whom had a psychotic episode. And then they also looked at other factors, including use of tobacco, alcohol, and other illicit drugs, as well as cannabis and what type or potency of cannabis they used. And what they found was the males were more likely overall to use marijuana and had a younger age of onset of psychosis. The mean age at the time of first psychotic episode for male marijuana users was 26. For female users, it was 29. Now, if you compare that to non-marijuana users, it's age 30, average of four years later for not males, and age 32, three years later, for females. They also found that patients who started using marijuana at age 15 or younger preferentially smoked the higher potency marijuana more often and had an earlier onset of psychosis than those who started using it after age 15. The earliest onset was seen among those who used high-potency marijuana daily. On average, their first psychosis was six years earlier than non-users. It is still unclear whether there are safe levels of use for cannabis in terms of amounts or frequency. Compare this to alcohol, where we know that it can be highly toxic or damaging in the long term to health, but that sensible use of alcohol in terms of amounts and frequency does not cause harm. We do not yet know enough about cannabis, whether there is a level that is safe. More research clearly is needed. It is thought that in light of the changes in marijuana laws in Colorado and Washington, that more research will be done on the effects of marijuana on mental illness in order to understand the risks associated with use. Even if marijuana is legal for adults, and if cannabinoids have some legitimate medical purpose, that does not mean that they are safe for all individuals. And... Perhaps I'll be proven wrong someday, but I think there are going to be some very serious adverse consequences of marijuana laws being loosened. All right, we are going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott on America's Web Radio. Be right back. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. 
Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com Have you checked out the only online guide where employers, health plans, brokers, and consultants can navigate private exchange and defined contribution markets? Browse PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today. The emergence of private health insurance exchanges represents perhaps the most significant shift in how Americans purchase health benefits in years. As employers move their employee population into private exchanges, this trend is on a growth projection into the 2015 benefit year and beyond, according to research published by Allegis Technologies. Visit PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today to browse our national searchable directory and for Healthcare Exchange Solutions magazine and newsletter. Be sure to submit your listing for inclusion in this groundbreaking guide at www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. That's www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all mental health-related news. I want to remind those of you who have questions or comments or feedback about tonight's show, whether you agree or disagree or just have questions or are concerned about your mental health or that of a loved one, please send all that feedback and questions and comments to me at this email address, Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at radiosandysprings.com which is R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Well, before the commercial break, we were talking about a study showing that the earlier age of onset of daily marijuana use, the uh, earlier onset of psychosis. Is it possible that the off-parodied pothead stereotype might be real and that a brain scan study could actually document the reality of this stereotype? Well, it turns out that shrunken structures inside the brains of heavy marijuana users might explain the stereotype of the pothead, according to brain researchers. Northwestern University scientists studying teens who were marijuana smokers or former smokers found that parts of the brain related to working memory appeared diminished in size, changes that coincided with the teen's poor performance on memory tasks. It is physical evidence like this. It shows that there is no way to justify legalization 
of marijuana. The researchers observed that the shapes of brain structures related to short-term memory seemed to collapse inward or shrink in people who had a history of daily marijuana use when compared to healthy participants. All right, now to be fair, these were daily users. They did not have another group who were light or intermediate users in terms of amounts or frequency. So does that limit the conclusions? Perhaps. But you can at least say that daily use results in shrinkage of brain tissue. That should get somebody's notice. Uh, let's see. Now, the study was published back in the December 16th issue of the journal Schizophrenia Bulletin. And the brain abnormalities are directly related to poor short-term memory performance. The more that the brain looks abnormal, the poorer the subjects are doing on the memory tests. This paper is certainly provocative because the participants had not been using marijuana for a couple of years. This indicates that memory problems might persist even if the person quits smoking the drug. At the same time, the paper presents a chicken or egg problem. Unfortunately, it is not clear from this research whether marijuana use caused the memory problems or people with memory problems tended to use marijuana. The study focused on nearly 100 participants sorted into one of four groups, healthy people who never used pot, healthy people who were former heavy pot smokers, people with schizophrenia who never used pot, and schizophrenics who were former heavy pot users. Researchers used MRI scans to study the structure of participants' brains. Both healthy and schizophrenic marijuana users showed shrinkage of regions deep in the brain that are associated with memory. They found both of the marijuana use groups had these parallel brain abnormalities. Tests of working memory further found that marijuana users scored lower compared with non-users. Now, what does working memory mean? Well, that's the ability to remember and process information in the moment and, if needed, transfer it to long-term memory. Poor working memory can lead to poor academic performance and problems with everyday life. Healthy people who never used marijuana scored 37 times better on average than healthy users who had smoked in the past on memory tests, while clean schizophrenics, those who were not heavy marijuana smokers, scored nearly four times better than schizophrenic marijuana users. Not nearly as striking a difference. It's well known that schizophrenia itself entails a severe impairment of cognitive function. And it's clear that those schizophrenics who are heavy marijuana smokers compound the problem apparently fourfold. This study confirms earlier findings that showed memory loss in young marijuana users, but more work needs to be done before it's proven that marijuana actually causes changes in the brain. 
It needs to be studied in a group of people over a period of time to document cause and effect rather than just an association. Now, interestingly, they did not find these structural deficits in the brain in folks who started using as adults. So that's why they decided to look at adolescents. Apparently the damage is done when starting to use the drug at an early age in a still developing brain. And it is also noted by the researchers that these changes in brain structure are similar to changes in brain structure associated with having schizophrenia. Again, that gets back to the link between heavy marijuana use, heavy high-potency marijuana use, starting at an early age and an earlier onset of developing psychosis. So with the knowledge from that other study that we discussed before, it makes sense that you see similar changes in brain structure between non-schizophrenic heavy marijuana users and schizophrenics. The bottom line, if someone has a family history of schizophrenia, they are increasing their risk of developing schizophrenia if they abuse marijuana, and even without a history of schizophrenia, individual or family-wise, heavy marijuana use, especially at an early age, does damage to structures in the brain that are responsible for cognitive function, especially memory. Again, there is such an overwhelming amount of research well documents the dangers and the damage done by smoking marijuana. Uh, cannot see a justification for legalization of recreational use. And unfortunately, the good people of Colorado and then Washington and who knows where else are going to be guinea pigs in a huge experiment where, yes, you may decrease the element of crime associated with the sale and use and distribution of marijuana, uh, but um, who knows if this ready access will increase the incidence of marijuana use and dependence on it and therefore increase the health consequences. Obviously, all that remains to be seen. Now, I feel like all too often on the show, I present very disheartening, discouraging, and yes, depressing news items relating to mental health. And for a change, I found something that is so wonderfully positive and uplifting, a really, truly feel-good story related to veterans' mental health, and I'm so happy to share this with you, and uh, I'm sure you'll find it as uplifting as I did. There is a veteran who works to pair dogs with other veterans who are PTSD sufferers. We have some groups that are joining to save the lives of war-injured troops and also saving the lives of homeless dogs. An Atlantan suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder has enlisted a team of volunteers 
whose goal is to reduce the startling suicide rate among Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, while saving tens of thousands of stray dogs that would be euthanized daily. His name is Will Chase. He's 46. He's a veteran of the first Gulf War, and he has formed an organization. It's called Please Find My Dog. And it develops apps for pet owners that give them the power to track lost dogs, keeping their pets out of shelters and helping to stave off euthanasia. The dogs are trained by volunteers in a number of partner groups that are concerned about the high euthanasia rate of dogs in shelters as well as the rising rate of suicides among veterans. Scientists know that dogs can be trained to help veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder cope with life. Nobody seems to know quite how or why, but dogs become trusted companions for veterans like Michael Adair, 38-year-old, a 17-year Air Force veteran who recently has been paired with a German shepherd named Gypsy. I dare say dog owners and diehard dog lovers do not find this too mysterious. Uh, it's a well-known fact that uh, dogs are very sensitive to the emotional state of their owners. Now, Mr. Adair, who is not allowed to say all he did or has experienced in, in the war, was stationed for a long time in the East African city-state of Djibouti, says he could not do without the dog. Chase's organization has developed apps for iTunes and Google that users can download for free. The app, when used on iPhones, Androids, or BlackBerry devices, provides information on missing dogs, including descriptions and pictures, helping reunite them with owners for fees ranging from $9 to $19. Please Find My Dog is operated by Dog Scene International, a mobile app-based marketing service that hosts a large database of pets and liaisons with shelters. The app allows alerts similar to Amber Alerts for Missing Children to be sent to animal control officials and shelters in minutes. And I think what we'll do now is take an, our next commercial break. When we come back, we'll further explain the link between finding lost dogs, keeping them out of shelters, and using them as therapy dogs for PTSD sufferers. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you 
Visit www.usjf.net today. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you on America's Web Radio. And we're talking about veterans group who tries to save dogs from being euthanized in shelters and repurpose these lost dogs as therapy dogs for veterans suffering from PTSD to help prevent them from eventually committing suicides. So this organization saves the lives of dogs and saves the lives of traumatized veterans. How amazingly wonderful is that? Well, so what they do is they put vital information on this app to help people find lost dogs. And it kind of goes out like a text message. And $5 of every $19 registration of the dogs on these apps goes to training the dogs that they save from shelters through partners like Companions for Heroes, Healing for Heroes, and All About Vets. Dr. Haley Grove, a veterinarian at Trusted Friend Animal Clinic in Sandy Springs, Georgia, is one of many individuals and groups, including the VFW, who support the efforts of Mr. Chase. He's, the again, the founder of Please Find My Dog. And Dr. Grove passes out flyers to customers, and information about her clinic appears when the apps are activated. And... Uh, she says, we're just trying to increase awareness. It may help us in terms of more people signing up. And I want to help the veterans and help the dogs too. And Mr. Chase says, from 22 to 28 veterans commit suicide daily. A very sad statistic indeed. And we can reduce this through the efforts of themselves and their partners. Now, according to Danielle Tynan of Passion for Paws, pairing these veterans with animals takes money $3,000 on average. And she is hoping that by working together, they can reduce the number of veterans who commit suicide each day and also simultaneously prevent the decimation of the homeless animal population. And... Uh, the veteran, uh, Adair, says he feels the organizations are helping our veterans by providing dogs like his, Gypsy. He says, she is helping me heal. She senses when I'm having problems, providing support and comfort. I can't explain it, but it's helping. Again, uh, a very positive, very uplifting story. Uh, again, the uh, organization... And the app, Please Find My Dog, and some of the other partner organizations that help pair veterans who suffer from PTSD with dogs that can help them mentally and emotionally and prevent them from committing suicide include Companions for Heroes, Healing for Heroes, All About Vets, 
and passion for Paul's. All right. Well, again, uh, very, very uplifting and so glad to be able to bring something so positive and encourage, encouraging and uplifting for a change. Now, this next item is somewhat related to PTSD, and uh, it certainly struck me as very odd, and it struck me as the kind of article that uh, might shock a lot of people. Uh, no pun intended. You'll know what I mean in a moment. And uh, certainly I thought I'd like to give you my take on it in case any of you heard about this and uh, came to your own conclusions. It's how to erase your unwanted memories. Now, don't get your hopes up. This is just an idea at this point, and perhaps not a very good one, but we'll talk about it and then see what you think. Forced memory loss, of course, has been the focus of countless works of fiction, a vehicle into unpursued paths and lives not lived. Now, scientists claim the practice of shock therapy may have a real-world application in erasing unwanted memories, particularly as a means to rehabilitate the scars left by post-traumatic stress disorder and major depression. Current theories about memory formation argue that people have a thin window of time between actually forming the memory and then storing it for later recall. It's within that space, that time period, scientists argue, that electroconvulsive therapy, otherwise known as ECT, unfortunately derisively known as shock therapy, may be able to interrupt this reconsolidation process, filling the memory with an implanted one or erasing it entirely. For patients whose daily lives are filled with constant mental anguish, the controversial method may have outstanding benefits. So let's try to get our minds wrapped around what they're saying here. They're saying, all right, if you have someone who goes through horrible, debilitating depression or exposure to extreme and severe trauma, setting them up to be at risk for at least acute, if not chronic, post-traumatic stress disorder. If you administer ECT, or shock therapy, during that critical window between exposure to the trauma and when memories are consolidated into long-term memory, you may be able to interfere with the formation of that memory and spare that person all this mental anguish and torture caused by that trauma. An interesting idea, a way to help, but certainly a radical method, and one with risks. The new study was published in the journal Nature Neuroscience. It showed that each of the researchers' 42 subjects responded to the therapy. In order to test their theory, the team showed two disturbing slideshow narratives. Afterward, they asked some of the subjects to recall one of the narratives. Then they administered ECT. A day later, when the participants were asked to recall the same slideshow, they failed. This signaled a time-dependent window in which memory reconsolidation occurred. Further, 
when they gave the same multiple choice test 90 minutes after the slideshow, both groups performed equally well. The details then were lost in the storage, not the immediate recall of subjects' memory. ECT didn't cause memory loss. Rather, it stopped long-term memories from ever forming. This provides very strong and compelling evidence that memories in the human brain undergo reconsolidation and that a window of opportunity exists to treat bad memories. The study could have deep implications for how patients with severe mental illness are treated. Though ECT has been derided as a crude or at the very least controversial method of treatment, modern researchers believe its use as a last resort can have profound effects on patient well-being. ECT is indeed controversial, but it also is capable of adhering to the three principles of ethical medicine. Do good, do no harm, and have respect for personal autonomy and justice. Many people are very surprised, if not shocked, to learn that ECT is still practiced to this day. Sadly and unfortunately, most people have fixed in their minds the image of actor Jack Nicholson playing Randall P. McMurphy in the film version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, being administered ECT, not therapeutically to alleviate an adverse mental state, but punitively to punish him for misbehaving, and also having it administered to him without anesthesia or proper medical attention. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I promise you that is the practice of ECT circa the early 1950s. And for many decades now, it has not resembled that in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. ECT's legitimate medical indications that are very effective are for major depression, especially psychotic depressive episodes, and also episodes of severe catatonia. ECT can also relieve some forms of severe mania and schizophrenia. If you look at success rates of treatments of severe depression, on a good day, folks, antidepressant medications have a success rate of something barely approaching 70%, whereas ECT, the success rate is closer to 85%. Also, this may surprise you too. If you look at the overall burden of side effects from treatments for depression, ECT actually has less because there are so many different types of side effects that people who take antidepressant medication may experience. The principal side effect of ECT is interference with memory. And that's what the scientists who did this study are trying to leverage. However, the downside of memory interference with ECT is that someone may lose long-term memories, and uh, that can be devastating. Now, <clears throat> given that ECT does have all these therapeutic benefits and it decreases the risk of suicide, it does comply with the ethical principles of medicine. 
Although it should not be thought of as a first line of defense in combating depression or PTSD and should only come after psychotherapy and medication have failed, it's ECT should only be used in cases where the patient is in an extremely debilitated state. Other treatments have failed, including psychotherapy. This is purely experimental. And while the experiment shows that deeply ingrained memories can be wiped out without harming other memories uh, in, in studies done in mice, we're a very, very long way from being able to replicate that in humans at least many years into the future. But the important takeaway from this research is that new avenues are opening up and the ability to permanently alter these types of memories might lead to novel, better treatments and, who knows, perhaps uh, even safer and less risky than ECT. We can only hope. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed the information that I very much enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful and stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.